There are more people enslaved today than have ever been enslaved in the history of the world. I need you to think about that for a minute. Because we often think of slavery as something that was in the past. The Emancipation Proclamation. We, we defeated slavery in America. No, we didn't. We defeated a phase of it. But that there's more slavery now than ever in history means even when America had a slave trade and England had a slave trade at the same time, there are more slaves now than when these things were legal in two of the most powerful nations on earth. That's mind-boggling. And this is how seductive the powers of darkness have become that they've brought slavery from, oh, okay, humans don't want out in the open, we'll take it underground. And we'll make sure that nobody knows about it. We'll kind of keep it covered. And we'll make sure that governments and people in power to do something about it profit from the slavery so that nothing will ever be done about it. We're not dealing just with a human crisis, friends. We're dealing with a spiritual crisis. There is more at work here than just, let's help people. There is light versus dark here. This is a black versus white issue. There's no gray matter here. This isn't open for debate. This isn't a partisan issue. There's hardly anybody you would talk to who says, oh no, slavery is good, don't fight it. This is about good and evil. This is about the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world. So right now, there are over 40 million people who are enslaved. Some people say it's up to 45 million. It's really hard to keep track of people who are kept out of sight. That's a lot of people. And from these 40 plus million slaves, it has become a global industry which brings in more than $150 billion annually. $150 billion are made off of these lives. And up to two-thirds of that is from sex trafficking alone. One out of every four slaves is a child aged somewhere between 5 and 17. And that's not just child labor. That's a whole other category. But it's violence against children for making them work. It's killing them because of their work. Or it's exploiting them to sex trafficking as well. In some very graphic ways that we won't get into in a public space. This can be an easy thing for me to go into so much detail that we feel overwhelmed and to go into so many graphic stories that we get paralyzed. And of course, there's, there's a certain temptation for a public speaker to use shock value to get everybody continually wowed. That's what cable news does, constantly tries to give you shock value. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to share a little bit, enough so that we get the problem but I don't want to glorify how gross and dark this is at the same time. Make sense? So I don't want to overwhelm you. I don't want to give you bad dreams. But I do want us to be motivated as those commissioned, those knighted by our king to be his ambassadors to the world. The question maybe is, how in the world does this happen? How do we get 40 million people enslaved and yet we twiddle our thumbs and say, oh well, How does this happen? Well, for one, you have child brides, child marriages. 
And often in poorer places, you would be eager to get someone married off and they get married and it seems like a good proposal, but all of a sudden it's not a marriage at all. It's an abusive relationship. And the wife, this child, sometimes as young as 10, 11, 12, cannot escape because of physical violence. They are trapped where they are. Good news is that Indonesia has recently passed a law within this last week that says that they will not allow anyone under 19 to be married. Before, you could be married as young as your parents permitted it. And sometimes the parents aren't always for the child because they're in that much poverty. That's a win. Other ways that this happens is by being sold. Um, I believe we heard in the video earlier that there are actually parents who will sell their children because they need to live. And so they'll sell their kids to sex over and over or to slave labor in order to get money. Sometimes you, you, they lose their parents and so they move in with an aunt or an uncle and the aunt and uncle, eh, there's a way to profit here and they'll use them. Sometimes you're kidnapped or you're stolen. You're literally just, you're, you're, you're claimed and you're taken away and you're put to either forced labor or slavery. Uh, sometimes it's debt. Like in the case of an actual story of a guy named Kasi who loaned a mere $15. He loaned a, he borrowed a mere $15. And the person he borrowed the money from was crooked and corrupt. And he owned a woodcutting industry. So, what did he do? He took Kasi and held the debt over his head and said, You haven't paid me back. Why don't you work off the debt you owe me? So Kasi becomes a worker for the guy who gave him the money. And over time... The guy keeps on raising the interest on him and he can't keep it up. So it goes from working a few months to pay off the loan to working five years to working 10 years. Kasi worked 15 years under forced conditions in which he was not allowed to leave. He would work 17 hours, get a few night hours of sleep, and then be trucked to some other isolated place where he'd cut down more trees. And he'd do this with kids and other people of age. And he's 70 years old. 70 years old, and he's using blunt axes and knives to try to cut down shrubs, bushes with thorns, and trees. And when the dull blades would give out, they still had to work, and they'd have to use their bodies to break these things down. And their hands are scarred because of dealing with the thorns and having to use your hands. And if you ever tried to escape, you were beaten. You were scared to leave because of the violence That's a 70-year-old man because he borrowed $15 from the wrong person. This is the kind of thing that goes on around the world constantly. And debt is one of, getting a loan is one of the main ways that this entraps people. And then there are jobs. The promise of jobs. Now imagine you are growing up in a poor region. Like say in Myanmar, where there's civil war. And your community is in poverty, and you see how hard everybody works to make a meager living, and you are excited about the prospects of, you know what, there's better opportunity somewhere else. And so someone comes along and says to you, hey, we heard of a good paying job. You can be a waitress in a restaurant. It's over here by the border of China and Myanmar. 
and you think, great, this sounds like a great opportunity. And it sounds legit because the person offering it has a pretty large house. So it seems like they have money and that there's actually a job for you. So you go with the people to the restaurant and what should have been a few hour drive suddenly turns into a few days and you don't know what's going on. Suddenly, Bangladesh turns into Chinese. This is the real story of two girls who were trying to work in a restaurant and the van kept carrying them on deep into China. And soon they didn't know where they're going. They were given pills for car sickness, which actually drugged them. It made them pass out and it, it caused their sexuality to become activated. And soon they found themselves here. And this was reported just, uh, I think, last month in the New York Times, August 17th. It says, after more than 10 days in transit, the idea of working in a restaurant receded from their futures. Nayo and Fayu, these are the two girls from Myanmar, they tried to run away twice while they're doing this long drive. They tried to run away twice, but they didn't know where to go. They didn't know where they were. The traffickers caught them and locked them in a room. Their phones had no signal. Men who spoke Chinese came to see them. Some pointed at one girl, some at the other. Fayu said, I had a sense I was being sold, but I could not escape. One of the traffickers told Fayu she was lucky. He was allowing her to choose among the men. Fayu rejected a fat man and another who was old. She cried, but the trafficker told her to stop because she needed to look pretty for her potential husband. And it goes on to talk about their experience and how they got liberated. Um, Fayu's friend, Nayu, was sold to a husband for $26,000. How much can you put on a human life? And where do you stop that number? Is $26,000 enough to be stolen, to be forced to be someone's bride? And then it goes on to explain in great detail how they would inject the girls so that they wouldn't resist their husbands as they try to get a child. And of course, this is a problem in China. You have more girls than boys because of their one-child policy. And so boys are desperate to buy brides. And so trafficking is happening so you have people in poverty looking for opportunities and jobs, but these jobs are a trap to try to make even more money off of these men in China who want to buy a bride. And the whole time they have no idea this is happening to them. One more story about what often happens, and this actually was just reported on September 13th. This is very current news. I'm going to read you a portion. For more than two years, Li Jin Hui, 20 years old, was never allowed to leave a three-room apartment in northeast China. Seven days a week, she had to sit at a computer from noon to 5 a.m. performing sex acts before a webcam for male clients, mostly from South Korea. The 17 hours. In the apartment, Miss Lee and the other North Korean woman each had to earn about $820 for a week for the Chinese pimp who bought them from human traffickers. When they failed, they were slapped, kicked, and denied food. 
We had to work even when we were sick, Miss Lee said. I wanted to get out so badly, but all I could do was peek out the window. Each year, human smugglers take thousands of women seeking to flee North Korea, promising them jobs in China, according to human rights groups and trafficking survivors. But once in China, many of the women are sold to unmarried men in rural towns or to pimps for exploitation in brothels and cyber sex dens. If they are caught running away from traffickers, China sends them back to North Korea, where they face torture and incarceration in labor camps. With nowhere to turn for help in China, they remain trapped in sex slavery. An estimated 60% of female North Korean refugees in China are trafficked into the sex trade and increasingly coerced into cyber sex, the London-based rights group Korea Future Initiative said in a report in May. Girls aged as young as nine are forced to perform graphic sex acts and are sexually assaulted in front of webcams, which are live-streamed to a paying global audience, many of whom are believed to be men from South Korea. When she was smuggled out of North Korea in spring 2017, Miss Lee was told she would be waitressing in China. When she arrived, her boss said her job was chatting at the computer. Until then, she'd never seen a computer. She didn't know what a webcam was. She was 18. I thought chatting was some kind of bookkeeping with a computer, said Kim Yina, 23, who was smuggled out last November, believing she would be picking mushrooms in China. I never imagined that it would be what I never imagined what it would turn out to be. But good news. Both Miss Lee and Miss Kim fled their captivity on August 15th. Six days later, they arrived in Viet Tien, Laos, with a man who was paid four thousand to smuggle them across the Chinese Laos border. Waiting for them was Reverend Chun Ki Wan, a Christian pastor from South Korea who funded and orchestrated their rescue. The good news, despite all this darkness and horrible things you're hearing about, people who are in desperate situations in North Korea, just trying to find a better life in China, end up in a trap. But there's a Christian pastor named Chun who is actively working to rescue girls out of China in this condition. And the story goes on to share how these two girls who were in the same place were rescued, which is very hard to do when you're locked up and you're not allowed to get out. He actually posed as a client on the webcam, but then turned into discussions about where are you? Can you help me find your location so that we can orchestrate a rescue? That's guts and courage. And I love that we have a story here of a pastor in South Korea who's on the front lines rescuing. This is how it happens, though. Poverty, war, um, South Sudan right now. Uh, Ken, Ken Dorenzo is going to South Sudan soon to actually teach the Bible to his soldiers there. But there are right now, they are actually accumulating children for the military force. They're routing in children. That's happening in South Sudan. So these, this poverty and civil war is causing this need, and and people with power are preying upon the weak. That's how this has happened. But it can be easy to say, okay, that's great. That's, That's out there. It's happening somewhere else. What can I do about it? But then I found out this week that 35 slaves helped to make my life possible. My lifestyle 
between the car I drive, the clothes I wear, the food I eat, and the things I have in my house. 35 slaves are behind that. Now, I know this because you can go online to slaveryfootprint.org, slaveryfootprint.org, and there you answer a series of questions about your lifestyle, and they estimate, based upon the information they have, about how many slaves are behind your lifestyle. Okay, 35. I'm like, well, that's not that many. Well, but consider how many we have in here. What is it, 125, 150, something like that? Multiply that by 35, and you have between four and 5,000 slaves in this room. Can you imagine? There are 5,000 slaves outside this building who are helping you live. That's when it starts to get personal. And I hope you feel disgusted with me, but I also <laughs> I hope that you score lower. And wouldn't it be great to see that number get down to zero? So this is actually a very here, it's an issue here in this room. We don't see it because the powers of darkness have done a marvelous job of concealing what it costs for us to live the way we do. You go to the mall. Do you see slaves there making the mall possible? You see a beautiful, pristine place built just like a temple for worshipers. And you buy things that you want. But nowhere do you see the ugly shipments that come in and then where those things come from and then the, the, where the materials are sourced. All of that's hidden under this pristine facade of beauty. And you want this because everyone has it. See, our culture is really good. And I'm not saying the humans behind all this are evil. Some of them have no idea where their stuff comes from. They buy from a middleman. They don't know that they are supporting slavery with their goods. But the powers of darkness have created a way to hide it from us. And so part of what we're doing tonight is we're raising awareness. We need to open our eyes to see what's happening behind the scenes and see what God might do. So, There is hope because one of our founding stories in the Bible, you have creation when God creates everything. And that's, that's one of our first founding stories. When, when we have Sanctity of Life Sunday and we celebrate pro-life instead of abortion, creation's one of these basic texts, right? Every human life matters and slavery here applies. We're all made in the image of God. Our second foundational story is covenant. That God who made everything is pursuing his lost people and takes a guy named Abraham and makes a relational promise to him that he wants to use him to bring all families back to God. Creation, covenant, third founding story is in the second book of the Bible, the Exodus. And this is such an important story that Jesus bases the majority of his ministry on the idea of the Exodus. Paul uses a ton of metaphors about our salvation based on the Exodus. This foundational story is about a God who hears the cries of his enslaved people and comes down to rescue them. This is a very biblical issue. This is a kingdom of God issue, slavery. And so, I want to take you through a brief history of slavery in the Bible, starting with, of course, Exodus, and getting toward here, Isaiah. So, in Exodus chapter 3, 
you have Israel who goes down to Egypt because things got so bad in their land that they had to get food. So they go down to Egypt because there's grain there. And they're, they're greeted so warmly. The Egyptians are like, oh yeah, great. Here, have this land to raise your sheep on. So they settle in, but generations go by. And soon, Pharaoh's administration is saying, what's up with these Jews? Why are they here? They're taking our resources, our jobs. Get them out of here. So, they enslave them. They put them to forced labor to build pyramids and make the Egyptian empire great. But they cry out to God. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you think that God hears the cries of the enslaved today? I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God's heart is in this, and he hears and he knows their sufferings. Would that he gives us the same heart? Now, Moses was part of the powers that enslaved the the Israelites. But one day, he woke up to what was going on, and he saw some Israelites being beaten. And suddenly he realizes, wait, I'm brother to these guys. And he had a Liam Neeson moment. I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. And so he takes those Egyptians and he kills them. And he thinks, I'm the great slave liberator. But rather than Israel rallying to Moses, the great Liam Neeson liberator, they're afraid of him. And then Moses is in trouble with the law. And now he's a fugitive on the run. And he feels like a failure. And this is where God meets him. Forty years of wondering, why did I give up the crown of Egypt to become a shepherd of my father-in-law's sheep? And God visits him and says, hey, I know what's going on and I've come to rescue them. But here's the deal, Moses. I need someone to work with me. Oh, you don't know who you're talking to. So Moses gives excuse after excuse after excuse. And you can number them, depending on how you count each one. There's about five excuses. And isn't that perhaps what's going on with us? We look at an issue and we're like, oh, no, that's way too big for me. You don't know who I am. I'm a nobody. And maybe like Moses' five excuses are like the last five years of your life where you're just dragging your feet about something God's been putting on your heart. And you're like, "Mm, you don't know who I am. You don't know my history. God's like, I'm going to keep on asking you to let my people go until you get rid of every last excuse. You stop sitting and thinking, eh, it's just not the right time, or I don't think I can do it. God's going to keep on inviting us into his work. And Moses finally goes in, and Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, hey, thus says Yahweh. Do you know who he is? He thinks, well, you think you're a God? Yahweh's like better than you, Pharaoh. 
So Pharaoh's already upset about all this. And he's like, hey, Pharaoh, God wants you to let his people go. And do you think that Pharaoh's like, oh, sure. Yeah, of course. I'm terrified of your God. Here, take them all away. Do you think that we're just going to easily walk into this world and just boom, we're successful. Everything we want to have happens happening. No, Moses doesn't only fail. He makes matters worse for Israel. Pharaoh says, we want them to go. What are they lazy? I'm going to double their quota which means that their slave, their slavery just got even worse. The beatings are going to be twice as much because they have to make twice as many bricks, but they're not even giving them the material they need. It's like, here, cut down 100 trees a day, but you don't get any saws. And if you don't do it, you'll get beaten. It's a very real issue here. And Moses actually makes it worse, so much worse that the Israelites plead with him, whatever you're doing with Pharaoh, stop, okay? Because you're making our life worse. We would have the other slavery versus this slavery. But Moses doesn't stop. He keeps coming to Pharaoh and says, okay, this time you're going to see the glory of God. Let my people go. And then you guys know the 10-stage showdown between him and Pharaoh. But notice that gradually Pharaoh begins giving in. He's like, yeah, you can go, but leave the children. And you can go, but leave the animals. Or he's, He starts through the course of these 10 confrontations, it's little by little, Pharaoh is beginning to give in. And friends, we have excuses. We make attempts and fail and make things worse. But if we keep on going when God asks us, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, it won't be overnight. But there will be little by little incremental progress. And finally, Pharaoh says, Please go. All of you go. In fact, we'll pay you. They get paid for the years of slavery with gold and silver. But as Moses leads the enslaved people into freedom, God begins to give them laws and says things like, look, you shall not enslave each other. You know what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. You will not enslave each other. No slaves in Israel. Occasionally, someone would become a slave, and God made provisions for that. Because in Israel, this is the what if you ran into debt, um, you would basically find refuge by working for another Jew. But there was a limit here. God said, every seven years, you must let that slave go. They shall not be owned by you. It was a way of helping them to pay back their debts. It was a, it was a decent system. But Israel was not to keep slaves. Guess what happens? Flash forward to their entering the promised land and building their life there and then finally raising up a kingdom with David and then David passes the kingdom on to his son Solomon. And Solomon begins to turn this little wilderness people who were once slaves into a very mighty empire. Solomon had sway and power over all the other kingdoms of the world, so much so that nations would ship their daughters to Solomon so that he would marry them and that they would have a special connection with Israel. 700 times nations shipped someone to him so they'd be connected. Now that right there, we could talk about the slavery that may have happened just by being married to a guy who has 699 other wives. Think about the miserable living conditions of those women. That right there was an evil, and the Bible condemns that very clearly. But Solomon goes further than simply amassing women in his harem. 
he becomes Pharaoh himself. The very power that Israel was liberated from, Solomon begins to embody. He not only begins to claim a bunch of women for himself, he also begins to claim a bunch of horses from Egypt for himself, but here is the clincher and the ugliest part of the entire story is in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. What's going on? Solomon is expanding the kingdom. We are in empire mode. So what do you need? Well, we need, a, we need a, 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 an army of laborers. And then he begins to build the temple, and he begin, which takes seven years. Then he begins to build his palace, which takes 13 years. And they are drafting forced labor. He even has a guy that's in charge of it. Then you look at chapter 7, verse 8. Seven eight, his own house where he was to dwell in the other court, back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Uh, Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. That's not the verse I meant to read, but um, that that does that's where we're we're showing that his first wife was from Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, and it's symbol. It's the story showing us that. Solomon's becoming more and more like Pharaoh. Not only is he having forced labor to build his empire, but now he's marrying Egypt itself. And then there's one more verse. If you actually go back to chapter 5, verse 11, or 13, 5, 13. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. So, Here we have a story about God calling his people to liberate people, and Moses does so successfully. But then those very people who are liberated, he tells them, you shall not have slaves. Solomon begins to draft a forced labor, and we see that we are a people who are often hypocritical. We claim we want to do these things, but sometimes we fail. And sometimes we just don't have the right vision. We get caught up in empire And I don't know if you can call America an empire or not, but here's the thing that we need to be careful of. We are Americans, and we're proud of that. We're part of the greatest, most prosperous nation in the history of the world. But yet, we cannot let our love for America blind us to the darkness of America. As, if you want to call it an empire or simply a strong nation, whatever America is, we are live in luxury on the back of slavery. And we're no different than King Solomon. God, of course, judged King Solomon's reign. The nation split over this forced labor after his death, and eventually they became slaves again to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which leads us to Isaiah. Chapter 58. So Israel, you flash forward hundreds of years, And Israel is now in bondage to foreign nations again. And Isaiah comes on the scene and basically says, God wants to rescue you. But here's the deal. 
This time when you're rescued from your bondage, you will become the rescuers of others in bondage. You will not follow King Solomon's route this time. You guys will be the liberators. So, as the prophets tend to do, they get stoned and reviled and slandered because they speak out about what everybody else wants to ignore. They're the ones saying, hey, what's going on isn't right. So Isaiah is going to call out to Israel, 58 verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, God speaking, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Israel's going, hey, we fast, we're spiritual. And God's saying, um, if you think abstaining from food makes you somehow better than everybody else, that's pathetic. Because right now, the kingdom of Israel had fallen because of slaves in their midst. Not just King Solomon, other kings that said, uh, one of the, earlier in Isaiah, I think it was chapter 30 something. It called, thir- maybe, whatever, I don't remember. So I'm just now remembering it. But Isaiah had called out to one of the kings saying, you have made forced labor build your palace. This is wrong. So God is telling Isaiah, look, a true fast is giving up whatever you need to in order to liberate another person. And starting with the darkness in your own heart, but then leading to the liberation of others. And if you do that, he continues in verse 7, is it not to share your true fasting? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. Brothers and sisters, America is the most powerful nation in the world. I don't think it would be a problem for us if we took seriously the eradication of slavery in the world. America has the resources to do it. But our nation's ailing, isn't it? We're watching it split at the seams. And Isaiah's telling Israel, and I can't imagine that's any different for America, that if we would choose the fast of loosing the bonds of those who are oppressed... If that would become our action, then we would find healing. Perhaps the sufferings of our nation are self-imposed because we are selfish with our power rather than seeking to use it for the good of the world. Isaiah 61, verse 1. We did this last week. Sixty-one verse one: The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus takes this very passage in Luke chapter 4, and we looked at that last week. Jesus takes this very passage as his first sermon to his hometown and says, this is why I've come. 
to proclaim liberty. Now, the Hebrew here is kara derao. I hope I pronounced that right. I bring it up because the same phrase, kora derao, is in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. And it's almost unanimously agreed by everyone I've read that when Jesus cites Isaiah 61, and uh, when he cites Isaiah 61, and when Isaiah is talking about proclaiming liberty, both of them are thinking about a thing called the year of Jubilee, which you can find in Leviticus chapter 25. And this same phrase, Karadarau, proclaim liberty, is found in Leviticus 25. And it would be definitely worth your time to go there. Leviticus 25. So this and then one more passage. Leviticus chapter 25. So when Jesus is saying, when Isaiah is saying, the Spirit of God's upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and Jesus takes that text as his ministry announcement to Israel, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me to proclaim liberty to captives. They are both talking about the year of Jubilee. Jubilee just means great celebration and joy. The year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. And this is what it says. Now, the whole chapter is talking about the year of Jubilee, and it's got a lot of details, but you can get the gist in 25, 8 through 10. It says, You shall count seven weeks of years. <laughs> That's seven sets of seven years. So it's 49 years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. I forgot I already gave you that math. So there you go. So in other words, after 49 years, that 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Okay? So first thing to know about the year of Jubilee, it's every 50 years. Verse 9, second thing. Then, so on the 50th year, you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the 7th month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. The day of atonement. When Israel is forgiven of their debts to God, the trumpet would be sounded and the year of Jubilee would begin. What happens on the year of Jubilee? Okay, happens every 50th year. It's ushered in through the loud trumpets being blasted. And third, verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year, and here you go, Korah de Rao, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. This is beautiful. Because look, God knows that our governments start off really good, then they kind of get corrupt, like King David. Well, he was kind of corrupt too, but <laughs> Israel's on the up and up and up, and then King Solomon just brings it to this terrible low of forced slavery. And that sometimes your economics can get out of whack, and people can fall upon hard times, and you would have to sell your land, because otherwise you have nowhere, you, you, you can't even pay any, you, you, you fall into debt, and so you got to sell your land, or sell yourself, or sell your son or your daughter to your neighbor, and God said it must be within the Jews, so you take care of each other in this process, but God's like, I want you guys to return to your property. 
Every 50th year, everyone has a chance to start over again. We'll reset society to put it back in balance so that the rich won't keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer, but we'll put everyone back in the middle. That's really cool. But, but here's the thing that we sometimes don't understand. Today, if you move, you generally want to or work kind of asks you to or whatever, and we move a lot in this society. You notice that? Like, it's not, it's, not, it's not news when people move anymore. Everybody's moving. Hardly anyone lives in the same exact plot of ground for their whole life. That's rare in modern society. But back then, you had no reason to move. Work was where you lived. Everything you needed was where you lived. There was no sense of a larger world. Your world was your backyard. If you ever had to leave your property, it was because you fell upon very hard times. So to not be at your homeland was very bad news. And God's saying every 50th year, everyone's going to return. Debts will be cleared and forgiven, and there'll be a great reset. What if, what if the year of Jubilee would come? Or what if what Jesus is saying is not, oh, hey, my ministry is the 50th year. Let's have a year of Jubilee. What if he's saying that now that I'm here, from now on, I want to see humans treating each other like it's the year of Jubilee? Here's a strange thing. When Jesus is preaching that sermon on that text, Israel is not in a place of power. He's not preaching to people that need to let slaves go. They are the slaves. They're enslaved to the Romans. And the Romans were vicious and brutal. In fact, it's estimated that somewhere around 50% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Half of the society working for a very small number of rich people. (laughs) And then everybody else kind of floating around in the middle somewhere. Okay, so here we have a society in which Jesus and the Jews know that they are on the margins of society. They're out to the side. They are not in the powerful center. And yet Jesus is going to raise up people who believe in his message of liberty and believe in the liberty of their souls and their bodies, and they're going to start to believe in his teachings. And then these small group of people are going to start to teach his teachings to people within Jerusalem. And then those teachings are going to spread to Judea. And from Judea, is going to spread to Samaria. And from Samaria, the teachings are going to eventually spread to the ends of the earth so that in the book of Acts, we see this message of Jesus reaching the Roman city itself the city of Rome, the heart of the empire. See what's happened? Jesus wants to use nobodies, Moseses. Grabs them from the fringes and says, come on, little by little, we will get to the heart of evil. And of course, it only took a few hundred years, but the Roman empire eventually collapsed. And most church historians actually credit Christianity for the collapse of the Roman Empire. That Christianity grew so much that this pagan system of oppression could not hold itself up anymore. That Christianity literally undermined it through its way of life. But it took hundreds of years. So that leads us finally to Revelation, chapter 18.
Revelation 18, verse 11. And here we see all the empires and their ways being pictured as Babylon. And the possible future empire of Babylon, they're all the same. They all look the same. So here's, here is the description. Revelation 18, 11. And the merchants of the earth, this is talking about the fall of this great world system, which by the way, the slavery, it's a worldwide thing. It's a worldwide system of darkness. And Revelation foresees its fall. So 1811, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, Babylon, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. By the way, this is all lavish stuff. This is luxury living here in that world. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. See what John does there at the end? The climax of the list of luxury in this Babylonian empire is slaves are driving the power underneath all of this. Human souls, he emphasizes. Babylon's going to fall. It's not only godless, but because it is living in luxury because of slavery. And so we have this hopeful message that it's going to fall. God's going to say enough, and he's going to judge the Babylonian system. Friends, we have to be patient, and we need to start to pray about our place. And how do we, like Moses, inch phase after phase until finally the pharaohs and the Babylons relinquish and collapse? Or to, to take the message of Jesus from the backwaters of the Roman Empire all the way to the city of Rome itself, where centuries later the empire will crumble under its own corruption and the way of Christianity will carry on society from there. How, how do we get to that point? I am, um, there was actually this morning, it was crazy. I was reading about um, the the year of Jubilee, and how in the 50th year they blew the trumpet, right? Which is, the Jews would use a shofar, a ram's horn. They called it a shofar. You'd blow the shofar. Uh, they would do that on the Sabbath to, to say the Sabbath is starting. Any major holiday, like the shofar would signal its start. And the year of Jubilee, a big loud blast for the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And so, I'm just on a whim, kind of like, you know what? I wonder if there's any more news about slavery today. So I um, opened the digital paper and began looking through the articles. And there is this story about how historians have known that during World War II, in the German concentration camps, Jews... There, there were rumors, there were stories that Jews would actually hold their religious services. They'd find ways outside of the Germans' notice to practice their faith. And that there were stories that shofars were actually blown in the concentration camps, which is mind-boggling because you would think if a German soldier heard a shofar blown, you know they would find it and kill whoever blew it, right? 
This was to blow the shofar in a concentration camp was an act of defiance against their oppressors. And so just this week, one of these shofars was brought forward that a guy named uh, Shackle Tidor, Shackle Tidor, it's, it's a Hebrew name, so I'm not sure if I got that right. But he was given, he was one of the guys who over, he was a Jew who oversaw the works of other Jews. And he actually uh, gave them space and said, look, 10 of you go pray because it's one of our festivals. And then they came back and told him, hey, we went and we did the prayer. And often they had this complex system of like distracting guards over here so that the Jews over here could pray. Um, they came back to him and said, hey, we prayed and you won't believe it, but somebody had a shofar and blew it and he couldn't believe it. Well, they're in one of the Auschwitz camps. Well, when the war was finally ending um, and they were going to be marched out of Auschwitz, the guy who had the shofar knew he wasn't going to make the journey. He just was not strong enough. So he gave it to this guy, Tidor, and gave him the shofar and said, look, you, you take it. And so in 45... 1945, when Tador is finally free, he goes to Israel, right? The British were giving their, their territory to the Jews. And there on the banks of Israel, a free man, he blows that shofar. It's his jubilee. He's blasting the announcement, I am now free. And this shofar was handed down to his daughter, who just recently brought it out to the public. And that's how now the historians are beyond guessing that they're blowing shofars, and now they know, okay, there's an actual case here where a shofar was blown in their captivity to defy their oppressors. And I think, friends, that if we want to bring jubilee to the world, we need people to blow the shofar. We need trumpet blowers. You know, whistleblowers are the people that announce crimes that are going on. We need more than a whistle. We need to take God's whistleblowing technique. We need to take the shofar and we need to put our lips to the horn and we need to blow. There have been a few blowers in history. And just to name a very small amount, Moses blew the shofar, didn't he? When he liberated Israel. The prophets blew the shofar when Israel was going south and was taking slaves within their own people. The prophets like, that's not good. God's upset. They blew the shofar. The Quakers. In the 1780s in Pennsylvania, the Quakers made a pact among themselves that they would hold no slaves. Before this became trendy in America, they would hold no slaves. They would deal with nobody who did any business with slaves. The Quakers began their own freedom movement. And it only took them 60 years. So in, in um, 1780, they, the Quaker state of Pennsylvania had 10,000 slaves. 1780. By 1840, they had only 64 slaves. Just by making the choice, we're going to blow the shofar and say, this is not cool. Slavery over 60 years was gradually reduced within their state. And this is before Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. They were the forebearers of the Underground Railroad. They blew the shofar. And then, of course, Abraham Lincoln, January 1st, 1863, signs the Emancipation Proclamation, which said, 
No more shall we hold slaves. Of course, that didn't quite end slavery. It took a progress of things to happen after that. But it was a trumpet-blowing moment when Abraham Lincoln took the shofar and he blew it and said, no more in this land. See, there were people on the fringes who were moving to bring it to the place of power so that the place of power would then say, enough, I'm blowing the shofar too. See, governments don't like to blow the shofar unless the people are blowing the shofar. Governments cowardly like that. They only want to do what the people want. We need to take up the shofar. Of course, Reverend Chun, who was taking up the shofar to release these girls who were cyber sex trafficked in China and bringing them to South Korea into freedom, he's blowing the shofar. And since 2001, he's helped more than 1,200 people out of China. And then um, there was another article that talked about how grass, there's a study coming out soon that shows that grassroots initiatives actually have an impact in slavery. Grassroots initiatives have an impact to fight slavery. So these grassroots initiatives, like uh, Not For Sale, they're blowing the shofar. And stuff's happening. And we could see the new Emancipation Proclamation, not just for America, but for the world. We could see the year of Jubilee come to its fruition. The question is, are we going to blow the shofar individually? And how, better question, how can we blow that shofar? How can we be trumpet blowers? I don't have a lot of plans because I'm like you on the learning curve. But I have four things I can propose right now. Four trumpets you can take up and blow. Number one, be mindful of what you purchase. Now, we can get obsessed about this and bum ourselves out and guilt trip ourselves about, oh no, this was made in Indonesia. I mean, that can happen, right? But by becoming aware and taking gradual steps to try to be more mindful of what we purchase, we can make a difference. Because if people stop buying stuff made from slaves and companies begin to learn that buying from better sources will get me better business, that will change the world dramatically in time. So how do I do that? Well, it does take a little research. But I've been told of apps. Michael Beavers told me that Not For Sale has an app. You can take a picture of something and it will tell you whether or not it's sourced from slavery. And if you're looking at a pair, his example is a pair of shoes here and a pair of shoes there, and the difference is $12 and one was made from slaves and one was made from free people, who among us wouldn't pay the 12 extra dollars? That's cool to know. Um, also, um, slaveryfootprint.org has their app as well that you can use to find out where your stuff is coming from. Number two, the trumpet of partnership. We can partner with these grassroots initiatives like Not For Sale, like Slavery Footprint, or like um, IJM, International Justice Ministries. And actually, um, we set up an account with International Justice Ministries who's fighting really hard in enslaved areas. And we have an account for Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, and we have a little link for you. Um, You guys will find these cards at the tables as you walk out, the side tables or the agape boxes, and it has the link there. You go to that link, and if you want to support the fight against slavery, 
your donation will go there and, and we have an account so that we can see. We won't know who gave what. It doesn't show us that. But it'll show us how much our church has raised in fighting this. And that would be really cool if we can reach, I said, a very uh, easily, easily attainable goal of $500. That's like $250 per person if all of everyone was here at once. Like, that's like $250 per person. It's pretty doable. Um, third, plan. So we can purchase, we can partner. Third, the, the, the trumpet of planning. Sometimes I may have a limited imagination about something, but Ron has a great idea about something that we can do. Ken is a, is a resource for social justice. Um, we get together and we share plans. We hash out a plan. So I want us to set up, and I know this isn't for everyone, but some of you will be really interested in, in getting minds together and praying about what we can do. I want to set up a table next week at dinner, and we'll just have a table where we just talk about what can we do. Let's make a plan. So next Sunday, there'll be a table. I'll say uh, Jubilee or something. I like that. Year of Jubilee, right? or, or trumpet blowers, welcome, something like that. Um, and we'll, we'll, just, we'll see what God does. We'll see what happens when we get together and plan. So the trumpet of purchase power, the trumpet of partnership, the the trumpet of planning, and finally, but not least, the trumpet of prayer. If there is nothing else that gets accomplished tonight, I want that we pray for the world. Now, we have needs, and we pray for them all the time. That's fine. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. I'm not going to tell you to stop praying for your needs. But we have mission to pray about too. And we've been doing really well. We see the prayer cards every week. And there is, there is a growing mindfulness of what God wants us to do in the world. And I'm excited about that. We can also add to this. So me, my community, and now the world. Let's pray for slavery Let's pray that God will raise Moseses. God will raise trumpet blowers. And you never know. God may raise you to do something as radical as becoming a missionary to the trafficked. Like Pastor Chung there in South Korea. You don't know. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were called by God to launch new churches in the Gentile world, even to Rome, because it was in a prayer meeting where they were praying and fasting that in the moment of their praying together, God broke in and said, hey, I want you to send Paul and Barnabas for the work which I've chosen them for. You never know that in those moments of prayer, God can powerfully put something on our hearts and you're your direction and your destination can change forever. It's in moments of prayer like that that I felt a call to be a worship leader and then a call to be a pastor. It's in moments of prayer that most people get their call and vision for life. We must pray. We must pray. And to do it together, we already pray at four o'clock. I would love to invite you to come and we'll pray for the church, but we will also pray specifically for the brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of our father around the world who don't get a life. And who knows what God will do when people get together and pray.